Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the 29th of December 2020. Almost time for the new year to start. So I'm trying to get in a couple of lectures uh, so that you can enjoy them over the holiday weekend, which is rapidly approaching. So let's just get started without any further uh, discussion of that. Now, remember, I'm talking right now uh, about the immunological metabolic paradigm in T lymphocytes. And we've been talking about this for some time relative to aging. <clears throat> now, I published an authentic biochemistry note Actually, it was a theoretical essay on Christmas that had to do with the reward pathway in the brain, human addiction to drugs and alcohol, and the association of that reward pathway with free will. Now, <clears throat> that was a piece all by itself, but of course, it's relevant to everything else I'm doing. And it's one of the pieces of the puzzle or one of the lengths of the thread that we're going to pull together to make this marvelous, uh, hopefully uh, respectfully humble understanding of how the immune system uh, is intimately associated with the aging process. And that includes the transition from a healthy uh, system to what becomes later on in life, a pathobiochemical system that ultimately leads to morbidity associated with disease and senescence and then death. So I wanted to bring in the neuropsychological aspect of it, and I will do it frequently um, because I want to make sure that we respect the fact that there is a great deal to do with aging that is linked to um, basically what you can understand as the cosmology of the self relative to rational psychology. So I'm, I'll, of course, define all those terms as time goes on, but that's what I want to leave it with right now. So <clears throat> right now I want to get back to the um, T lymphocytes and some um, immunological uh, biochemistry. This came out from a paper published oh, a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago in Science Translational Medicine. This was published in July of 2019. I'll put it in the show notes. This paper is talking about pharmacoimmunotherapy being the next best treatment in human cancers. Cancers, of course, being one of the leading causes of death and therefore most associated with the elderly and associated with old age. Of course, cancer can happen anytime spontaneously in the lifespan of a human, but one of the leading causes of death in the elderly is still some form of cancer, and that's why we're discussing it here. So at the very beginning, I'm telling you that pharmacoimmunotherapy is used as a treatment in human cancer. That's immunotherapy, right? So it involves manipulating death signaling in T lymphocytes. And the current uh, methodology is using monoclonal antibodies to inhibit the binding to a programmed death signaling pathway 
uh, cluster of receptors. So the therapy involves molecular aiming at the so-called immune checkpoint molecules, including the programmed death receptor 1, or PD-1, and the cytotoxic T-lymphocyte-associated antigen 4, or CTLA-4. We've discussed both of these recently. So checkpoint inhibition, as it's called, has been deployed to treat melanoma, non-small cell lung uh, cancer, and other very critically uh, deleterious cancers. But successful treatment is not uniform using this particular immunotherapy. Using the immune checkpoint blockade, uh, also known as ICB, uh, allows some patients to uh, experience immediate and sometimes complete tumor regression. While there is another population of patients that don't respond at all, and there's everything in between. So the search for enhancing ICB by revealing the underlying molecular mechanisms, of course, will help improve this pharmacotherapy, pharmacoimmunotherapy. So I want to get that out there at the beginning. Now, pathways that antagonize co-stimulation of T lymphocytes, including signaling downstream of the co-inhibitory receptors, that's CTLA-4 and PD-1, they also, interestingly, impair glucose uptake and metabolism. So engagement of the CTLA-4 inhibits glucose uptake and metabolism directly by maintaining uh, the metabolic profile of non-activated T-cells, as if it were, they were not activated via the T-cell receptor. And the antigen-presenting cell with the MHC class 1 offering of the antigen. Now, PD-1 ligation also impairs glucose metabolism, while it additionally promotes fatty acid beta-oxidation, of course, of endogenous lipids stored as triacylglycerol. Now, that happens both in the setting of primary activation and chronic antigen stimulation, which essentially overrides and, and ultimately can cause a hypoimmune response. So importantly, PD-1 signaling is chronically, in chronically stimulated T lymphocytes induces a metabolically irreversible state not resolved by PD-1 blockade, which instead promotes ultimately reactive oxygen species production and of course, cell death subsequent to all of that Ross uh, accumulation because of the disruption of DNA, RNA, protein, and lipid, right? Which is standard happens with reactive oxygen. Now, one potential means to improve immunotherapy, for example, in cancer, would be to add further strain on tumor metabolism and on signaling therein so you break down multiple barriers of resistance all at once, and that will then generate a platform for medical therapy, right? And specifically, pharmacoimmunotherapy. So the publication we're talking about reports on research using mouse models, of course, in combination with monogenic mouse tumor-bearing lineages and then monitoring the tumor cell population using flow cytometry and using uh, RNA sequencing data to pick up on what transcripts are being made. 
certain potential protein targets can be suggested from this kind of work. Now, you know, there are caveats there. Flow cytometry is going to look at the surface of cells and try to describe which subpopulation of T lymphocytes are being generated by treatment or are, are decreasing in uh, division rate because of treatment. And when you're looking at RNA data, RNA data, then extrapolating it, say the protein would be the targets. That's another issue because just because you have messenger RNA doesn't mean you have functional polypeptide. We've talked a lot about post-translational modification of proteins, their turnover, even the proteosomal degradation, and also their amphibolic or their transmigration within the cell, whether or not they are even active, even though the transcription has occurred. So these are some, uh, you know, gaps in the logic when, when you're starting to analyze what might be the best uh, route to go for looking at pharmacoimmunotherapeutic targets. Now, <clears throat> the, researchers here, the researchers here found that checkpoint inhibitors in combination with T-cell, STAT, and TLR3 innate immune activation and interleukin-10-D activation, which would de-suppress de the system, actually provide adequate agency to flip the tumor microenvironment to one of a non-drug resistant and thus, of course, responsive anti-tumor phenotype. All right. Now, let me frame this diabetologically. <clears throat> All scientific inquiry like this has to start with some kind of dialectical method that uses the current knowledge base to generate various theses and then follow each of these with some kind of supporting or counter-argument depending on what kind of dialectical analysis you're using. But in both instances, you have to employ the square of opposition. So what you end up producing are antithetical responses that can either be contradictory, right, which means that they cannot both exist because of the excluded middle in square of opposition types of logical problems, or they can be contrarian, which means that multiple lines of evidence can lead to data that seems disparate, yet points to a univalent understanding of the regulation, which in itself might appear paradoxical, but when, in the end, because when it's a natural phenomenon like a biological system, paradox really has no place because in the end, the functional analysis of it basically proves that it works. And because it works, it can't be a true paradox, right? So synthesis then of any kind of dialectical analysis can give you a flavor of a rejection of accepting the synthesis of that dialectical argument, um, or perhaps moving on to yet another argument, right? So you can reject it, you can accept it, or it's also possible that you can defer. Now, once a dialectical method has been applied, the other necessary element of inquiry is enjoined in, in, in terms of research science, which involves choosing of an event ontology as opposed to a substance ontology. In other words, looking at what's, what's actually happening in time and the event rather than looking at an individual given protein or transcript or even pathway. 
And that's because all phenomena move through both space and time. Thus, to capture the nature of the system, the, if it's a tumor system, for example, or an aging system, or an immunological association of one of those uh, framed um, potential disease states, you have to rise above the level of what's occurring there and not merely apprehend the substance, but rather see it as something that's occurring through time. Uh, that could be what I call becoming. And then you can understand it uh, at the level of this, again, event ontology. So you can help generate hypotheses that can hopefully participate in understanding the potential outcome of the experiment. So that's, again, a little bit of like trying to frame how you look at these experiments. Okay, that's what I'm trying to do with you here. Now, downstream of co-stimulation of the phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase AKT and the mammalian, mammalian target of rapamycin kinase pathway, you get an integration of multiple signals. We've talked about these many times. These, these path, this particular pathway, the P13 kinase AKT mTOR pathway, regulates anabolic metabolic reprogramming in the T lymphocyte. That means it's exiting quiescence, okay? So the mTOR complex one, which is the mTOR, which is essentially a kinase with association with a lot of other proteins that act as um, fine tuning features of the mTOR output sequelae. So the mTOR complex one, okay, which we're talking about here is required for cell cycle entry and a coordination of all the early metabolic events that occur upon that T cell activation. So then one sentence there, now you understand this anabolic system. So <clears throat> T cells deficient in a protein called Raptor, which is a central component of the mTORC1, fail to upregulate the expression of GLUT1, remember that's the glucose transporter, and glycolytic enzymes, which are necessary for the utilization of glucose. So Raptor deficient T cells, besides showing a deficiency in GLUT1, right, and in glycolytic enzymes, also exhibit defects in de novo lipogenesis and indeed in oxidative phosphorylation, suggesting that the mTOR pathway is a global regulator of T cell metabolic programming. So beyond activation, mTORC regulates T cell metabolism in fully differentiated T effector cells after activation. So Raptor deficiency leads to its impaired lipid biosynthesis and mitochondrial respiration in T reg cells and in B follicular helper T cells or TFH cells. Although the results that you get from this Raptor deficiency is somewhat biased on which model system you're looking at human cells in culture versus rat models versus mouse models is what I'm talking about there. So the literature isn't um, uniform in what happens with Raptor deficiency. But what I told you previously is a common uh, output. 
So the regulation of mTOR signaling during T-cell activation and differentiation is regulated. And it's regulated in one very important way by asymmetric cell division. Because of that, you, that may explain all the discrepancies I just tried to mention to you about temporal differences, spatial differences, and species differences, as well as cell differences. Because you have asymmetric cell division, so you're going to get a readout from the total population of the system with the total animal model that may give you mixed, quote, mixed signals. That's because you get asymmetric cell division, okay? That's very important to understand. So memory T cells also require mTOR signaling to sustain effector metabolic programs. For example, CD8 memory T cells, CD8 positive memory T cells, deficient in another protein called RICTOR, which is an essential component of the mTOR complex two, are unable to sustain glycolysis upon reactivation. Although the initiation of glycolysis is actually rapamycin insensitive, which means it's not through the mTOR pathway. Remember, mTOR is the target of rapamycin. Okay. So you see where I'm getting here. See, I'm mixing. Uh, hopefully blending well um, how you how the research is done, okay, by using inhibitors, for example, and looking at particular targets of proteins and particular activity of those proteins, functional and structural associated changes over time, so that you get a better handle on how the research is conducted. Given what I gave, given what I said just before how to generate those hypothetical deductions using the dialectic. Because you need to know this information, not only to prepare uh, a, an hypothesis and then design experiments, but you're gonna need it downstream from there when you start getting data to be able to interpret the data. You have to be able to have a good dialectical handle on what may or may not occur Remember always the contrarian and the contradictory flow of information that comes out of living systems. Very seldom contradictory because contradictory means you're looking at two things which can't be related if they contradict each other and you, would, and you are admitting they must not contradict. Most likely they're contrarian, but in ways that may have to do with things like feedback inhibition, feed forward associated activation, things like that, which we've talked about in classical biochemistry. <clears throat> So the mTOR pathway drives post-transcriptional regulation of key metabolic transcription factors. Although effector transcription factors like Tbat, for example, can be regulated directly by mTORC1 as well. Okay, so you've got you've got metabolism causing the expression of transcription factors because of mobility of upstream transcription factors to synthesize those at the transcriptional level in the nucleus, but also directly the mTORC1 can act basically as its own TF, as its own transcription factor, of course, with a lot of uh, accessory proteins associated with it to make that chromatin remodeling functional at a discrete and specific locus. So again, let's talk about Raptor. Raptor-deficient T-cells have a diminished protein level of two primary regulators of lipid synthesis. So this is moving down one level, right? <clears throat> Sterile regulatory element binding proteins one and two. 
That's the SREBPs one and two. Okay. So when you don't have Raptor, you have a diminished level of those two lipid metabolic transcription factor regulators. So a Raptor knockout T cells that have had a total knockout have a reduced transcript expression level of genes that encode for the enzymes in the glycolytic pathway, as well as in the de novo pathways of fatty acid and sterile biosynthesis, which makes sense. Remember, you go through glycolysis, you're going to run uh, at the early stages, you're going to have that blockade of the pyruvate dehydrogenase via the pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase. And they are going to have a flow of carbon to lactic acid. Remember that? Um, and you're going to have that fluxing through of the NADH and AD through lactic dehydrogenase versus uh, the uh, uh, glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase, which is going to utilize the NAD. <clears throat> you're going to have that circuit working. But then later on, remember what I've told you, is that you do got to start getting carbon flow from pyruvic acid as a result of glycolytic oxid glucose oxidation via glycolysis. And the pyruvate that's synthesized is going to be involved in those two reactions, pyruvate dehydrogenase and pyruvate carboxylase. So you're going to make, respectively, acetyl-CoA and oxalacetic acid, which again are going to go through citrate synthase and make citrate all in the mitochondria. And then the citrate's going to not continue on the TCA cycle because of the excessive amount of NADH, which shifts the ratio of NADH to NAD over unity, that is over one. And because of that, you shut down all of those dehydrogenases in the TCA cycle, right? Isocitrate dehydrogenase, alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, succinate dehydrogenase, and malate dehydrogenase, okay? Those four, which, which turn the cycle, right? So that means the citrate then is going to leave the mitochondria when it leaves, it's going to meet up with ATP citrate lyse. And when, and when it does that, what will happen is you'll make cytosolic acetyl-CoA and OAA. And the cytosolic acetyl-CoA, and the reason it doesn't just move from the mitochondria to the cytosol via some kind of transport system is because it's a coenzyme A thioester. And coenzyme A thioesters make micelles, which are clustered, um, unilamellar uh, spheroid structures, and these micelles cannot traverse the membrane because they reach what's called their CMC or critical micellar concentration. And because of that, they cannot permeate membranes, right? So their flux is inhibited. So that's part of how the bio, the biophysics of the system contribute to the biochemistry of the system. So that you require then acetyl-CoA to be synthesized essentially de novo in the cytoplasm. Now, what that allows for, of course, is a complete regulation of the system, as you might guess. You know, controlling, for example, just the levels of NADH and AD, <coughs> controlling the levels of pyruvate versus um, OAA and acetyl-CoA. The, uh, the concentrations of OAA itself with uh, PEP and with pyruvate and with lactate and even with uh, glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, all of which are going to be juxtaposed just correctly to allow for lipogenesis at the same time you're running glycolysis and these fully activated T lymphocytes. You understand? Okay. <clears throat> so 
Raptor knockout T cells have a reduced transcription of genes that encode the enzymes of glycolysis as well as fatty acids, sterile synthesis, like I just said. mTORC-1 mediated signaling is also required for proteomic remodeling of the pathways, including carbon-1 metabolism. Now, what's that? Of course, that's N-acidenosylmethionine and associated folic acid metabolism. That's C1 metabolism. C1 metabolism is super important for nucleotide biosynthesis and also, of course, histidine biosynthesis, two major pathways. I won't go into why histidine is so important here, but it is. But the real reason why folic acid and acetylmethionine are important, what is acetylmethionine able to do? It's a methylating agent. What can it methylate? That's correct, cytosine residues in the promoter regions of genes. And what happens when you hypermethylate CPG islands? You shut down their transcription. So that's all epigenetic modulation. And mTOR controls the metabolism of that methylating agent. You see? So much more complex than just looking at anabolic transcription factor pathways, right? Which, of course, because it's biochemistry. Uh, now, not only you have the one carbon metabolism being regulated by mTORC1, I already explained to you that you have fatty acid metabolism as well as the electron transport chain, okay? Because ultimately, remember, you're going to make lipid, you're going to make tricyclosterol, you're going to make storage tricyclosterol with the neutral lipid, but then you're going to start carrying out lipase-mediated removal of the fatty acids stripped out the glycerol backbone, and once you get that fatty acid, you make a fatty acyl-CoA of the cytoplasm, and then go to the carnitine palmitoyl transferase pathways one and two, get back in the mitochondria, and fire down that palmitic acid back to acetyl-CoA, so then you can make a lot of NADH and FADH too. And now you're talking real bioenergetics, great deal more ATP, over 78, uh, 70 moles of ATP are going to be able to be made from that one fatty acid. So you get the idea of how much more bioenergetics you get. So you have short-term storage of triacyclosterol, then it's utilization. And mTORC is controlling all of this, running essentially the clock so that each particular ticking uh, around that uh, face of the clock, you're getting these metabolic pathways changing in their profile and in their stoichiometry so that you are constantly transitioning to a newer state. Hence, what did I say? An event ontology. See, it's not a substance ontology. Can't just take a picture of this. It is a constantly changing movie. Right? Well, it's much more sophisticated than a movie because it's not really scripted like a movie. So, because it has to constantly deal with the environment. So, mTOR also modulates T cell metabolism to the control of another uh, transcription factor called, and we've mentioned it many times, the HIF1 alpha. That's the hypoxia inducible factor 1 alpha where in a deletion or an inhibition of HIF1-alpha in, for example, TH17 effector cells or in the naive CD8-positive T cells, but on any other subsets or any other activation states would lead to a decreased expression of GLUT1 and glycolytic gene expression. So you see that that's hindering, that's regulating the, the differentiation of the different subsets of the T cells. See? So again, another layer of complexity, right? It doesn't make it complicated. It's just complex. <clears throat> Signaling through mTOR also regulates uh, other transcription factors like CMYK, which we've talked about in the past. I'm not going to go into details what it's up to. Uh, Raptor deficiency results in a loss, though, of CMYK protein 
without changing any of the transcript levels. That's similar to its effect on the SREBP system in early activated T cells. Now, all of that occurs presumably via, as you might guess, because the protein level, proteasomal degradation pathways using likely ubiquitin and the classical proteasomal machinery. Okay. So I want you to get that. I want you to get that image as well going, okay? That you've got protein turnover going. All right. So I'm not going to go any further today. I just wanted to lead you in, okay? And that's what I've done. We're now well into the inner workings of the T lymphocyte in terms of bioenergetics and in terms of intermediary metabolism and how that affects T cell differentiation, right? And we've already talked about the fact that this is going to be hooked up in, if we're looking at central nervous system with the potential for having either hypo or hyperimmune responses, particularly during senescence, okay? So keep that last discussion in mind. Next time we talk, we're going to go into another really interesting story here, how glycolysis is actually regulated by acyl-CoAs, and all of that's regulated by the sphingomyelinase producing ceramide rafts. Yep, that's correct. Anyways, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. I hope that you enjoyed this lecture today, 29th of December, 2020. I'll try to do one more before New Year's. Um, but uh, from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, this is me saying bye for now. <laughs>